Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello, I'm Basha, and you're listening to The Slow Newscast. Now, we know that universities have a serious problem with sexual misconduct on campus. Last year, tortoise journalists Chris Cook and Ella Hill reported a really remarkable story about Cambridge and a particular college called Trinity Hall that became really tangled up in a series of sexual assault allegations against the student and against academics. And in the end, it seemed that preserving the reputation of that Cambridge college counted way more than the welfare of its students. You can listen to that episode by searching in our feed for A College With Secrets. Well, this week, Chris and Ella are back with another investigation, a really shocking story about how a woman, a student at Queen's College, Cambridge, says that she was asked to deal with an allegation of rape by herself. I'm handing over to Chris. A short warning. This story contains some tough themes, including references to sexual assault and to suicide. Some listeners may find it upsetting and prefer to give this one a miss. Me Too is happening for a reason, you know, which is not just, I mean, in a sense, not at all the sexual abuse. It's about the people in power, you know, covering covering that up. And I think the kind of, cold clinical reality of what it takes to cover up something (laughs) like that I don't think it had really hit me that people that I knew you know I would see someone walking around the college and that they could be so you know villainous that they could be like the big bad evil people that um you've been hearing about on the news This is a story about one student, and she's talking about her one case, a story of serious sexual assault. And it takes place at one university, Cambridge University, a pretty unusual university as it happens. It's a collegiate university where the student body is divided into one of 31 little colleges. Her story specifically is about Queen's College, one of those tiny institutions. It's just a thousand or so students. But her story of a botched process that let her down, it could have happened almost anywhere. The fact that it's at Cambridge, the fact that it happened at Queen's, it's almost by the by. 
This is one woman's complaint of rape. But it's a story shared by many others in a sector where institutions routinely fail to deal with these cases. I'm Chris Cook, a reporter at Tortoise, and you're listening to The Slow Newscast. This is that one woman's story, in her own words, as she went through this. It's 2018. It's a warm spring evening, and a student, we'll call her Sophie, was getting ready for a meeting, along with two other students. They're preparing to verbally relive the details of grim episodes that they've played out over and over in their minds. They're going to relive them in front of a total stranger. I remember that the whole time like my hands were shaking because I was, I was just so pumped up with adrenaline um and I I'd never I'd never spoken about something that had happened to me like that in the way that I did in that meeting this was the first time that I had sat in front of someone and said this happened to me I think it was wrong and I think something should be done about it. So for me, it was a massively, you know, it was a momentous thing and I was very scared and overwhelmed. But going into the meeting, I felt like, I mean, I definitely thought I was was doing the right thing. The women... All students had decided to walk into this room to share explicit allegations of sexual misconduct, sexual assault and rape, all concerning the same man, a fellow student. I mean, the, the, the decision for me completely turned on finding out that other people had had similar experiences with the same person because... Initially, I mean, for right up until the day before I went to, to speak to the college about what had happened, I didn't know of this person having done anything similar to anyone else. The person to whom they reveal these intimate details of abuse was the head of welfare at their college. Sophie recalls the worry in her mind about calling the man who assaulted her a rapist about the impact this would have on him and how it might ruin his life. I distinctly remember before going into the meeting, the three of us were prepping for the meeting a little bit and we were talking and we were saying things like, you know, we were like, are we really prepared to take somebody's university career and potentially, like, end it? Like, are we really ready to do that? The person they were speaking to cut an unusual figure, a welfare advisor called Tim Harling. He was, strictly speaking, the Reverend Tim Harling. He was Dean of Chapel, an Anglican clergyman. But the women were assured by a friend that Harling was a nice man, with the best interests of students at heart. Students involved in welfare had referred the women to him. He was perhaps more streetwise than the average minister. He had joined the college in 2013 after several years working as a chaplain at Her Majesty's Prison Peterborough. He was a welfare advisor. This was a safe space. 
three of us went. <laughs> um, and I went first and I described in, you know, as, as clinical detail as I could what had happened. Um, and not just the um, assault, but the the manipulation afterwards. I was very, very explicit about what had happened. And I don't think that there's any way that he could have misunderstood what we were talking about. I mean, we were very explicit, each of us, in describing exactly what had happened and in saying, I didn't, this was not consensual. And I want something to be done about that. The three women laid out their experiences. We asked each of them, could there be any doubt about the seriousness of what was being alleged? All of them agreed, no. The range of allegations was clear. So I was like, you know, I don't, I don't want to be prejudiced. Like, I guess you can be a reverend and, you know, advise young women about sexual assault. Indeed, Sophia recalls her only real prior experience of Reverend Harling, one that gave her some comfort. There was um, a day where we had lots and lots of inaugural talks and Reverend Harling did one of those talks. Um, and it was the consent talk in his role as sexual assault and harassment advisor. It was a very, very memorable speech because he gave a description of some, you know, non-consensual sexual acts and then said, if you do this, then you are a rapist. <laughs> With like a pause of just such excruciating length. So I definitely never, never forgot him um, from, from that. This was a person that it made sense for her to be telling about how, a little time before, back when she was new to the college, she alleges she was raped by a man she knew, another student at the college. Like, all we're doing is telling them the facts about what happened, and it's up to them to follow through with their own policies. And I, yeah, I just remember really believing that we were going in to this room and we were going to be listened to and that the response would be swift. You know, people kept on saying, right, in the news and everything, you'd hear all these stories about Harvey Weinstein and all of this sexual abuse and people always going on the news to say, like, oh, it's very wrong. Oh, we don't like that. And so I, I just thought, like, oh, great. Everyone doesn't like sexual assault. It definitely did contribute to me being able to go and speak to someone about it and say, hey, actually, this isn't acceptable. Like, you can't just do whatever you want to me and there'd be no consequences. Which is just the theme running throughout my whole story, which is just like, there's never any consequences. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, it's Tomini from Tortoise. This podcast is sponsored by EY. Senior business leaders in the UK are keen to harness AI, but there's a complex regulatory maze emerging globally. The OECD, a group of the world's richest countries, which includes the UK, has adopted a new set of principles to ensure that AI operates in a way that's safe, fair and trustworthy. The principles are wide-ranging, but in essence call for AI systems to be designed in a way that respects the rule of law and human rights, and says there should be transparency around their use. By embracing the core principles of responsible innovation, UK business leaders can better explore sector-specific opportunities and emerging trends without compromising on citizens' trust. Find out more at ey.ai. What he said was that what had happened in each of our cases was totally immoral, you know, wrong, and it should never happen, and it shouldn't have happened in this college, and it sickens me. But it's not illegal, so you can't go to the police. And and I remember being confused. I mean, I I I think that after that meeting, I was kind of saying, well, I think it, it is illegal. The other two students in that room had a range of experiences, some graver than others. But the patterns of behaviour that they saw were consistent, and elements of their stories overlapped. In Harling's telling of this meeting, he said he'd support them in making a complaint to the police or to the college. But the three women all feel they were discouraged from doing so. One of them later testified that Harling told them that they should avoid college disciplinary action as the stress, socially and mentally, was too hard. And Harling would later admit that he did not tell them that they had the option of going to the central university with their complaint. So what did Harling advise? They say they were told that the most effective action would be some form of what one of them would call vigilante justice. The thing that would affect the man they had accused was laughing at him. Harling and the college deny these parts of their account. So essentially, he, he's, he said to us, if you want to see something done, you need to do it yourselves. If you want to protect the people in college, then you need to take this into your own hands. You need to go knock on doors, speak to your mutual friends and, you know, tell them exactly what you've told me. Like recount this, you know, these events in gruesome detail and make sure that they understand, you know, what's happened, what this guy's like. It was incredibly, incredibly difficult, especially because at that 
time. As I, as I said earlier, I mean, I really hadn't, in, in some senses, really hadn't yet accepted parts of what had happened. So two of the three women, quite literally, went door to door in the college. They recounted to a string of their peers what they had been through. Because that's what they thought they'd been advised to do. Having to recount those events over and over again, for, for one, is just fundamentally really re-traumatising and triggering and it's difficult to deal with. It, it's so scary when you're speaking to people, some of whom 100% I felt were, were closer to him than to me, and you're speaking to people and you... Yeah, it's, it's hard not knowing what people's reactions will be and what they're saying once you've left the room, you know. Um, and it created so many issues, basically having to justify to people why they should care that this person raped you. One other effect of that meeting was that despite the similarity in the three women's accounts of that man's behaviour, the women were left with the impression that consequences would only result if other victims came forward. Again, Harling disputes this part of the account. We were told if, like, it sounds really, really bad, but, like, we, we, we're not hoping this will happen, but we can't do anything until we find, you know, until he does it to someone else. And we were told that the best that we could hope for was that Reverend Harling will have an informal chat with this person and try to communicate to him that what he'd done was wrong, try to scare him basically with the with the consequences if he did it again. I sent Reverend Harling an email saying, I've spoken to someone who says that this person also assaulted her friend who's also at the college. Nothing, nothing came of that email. Sophie believed that the one thing Harling had done was to implement a no-contact order, a ruling that the person Sophie had accused of rape was not allowed to approach her. Sophie explained her understanding of the arrangement she had requested to her peers. This is a text message she wrote to a friend at the time. If he contacts me again, he gets in shit with the dean. If he does it repeatedly, then he'll get kicked out of accommodation. In truth, though, the college had not put in place any such order. The man was not given the kind of warning that Sophie had expected. I came back to Queen's um, after the summer and first day back, bump into him and he said hello to me. He was like, hey, how are you? And I just... Just stared at him like, why, why are you speaking to me? We were in, I was in the bar with some friends. He came down, um, pulled up a chair next to me and sat down with us and kind of tried to join in the conversation. And so this guy went in and spoke to him and said, look, it's not really on for you to come and push her out. I went to... Reverend Harling asking for there to be some disciplinary action and there was disciplinary action but it was against the person that had um, protected me in the bar and, and spoken 
to this guy on my behalf and asked him not to bother me. Just think about that. The women had felt they were advised against pursuing a disciplinary action. The only thing they felt Harling had offered was a no-contact order, which Sophie did want. But that would turn out not to be real. The college would explain that if Sophie had wanted this to be a disciplinary matter, she'd approached the wrong member of staff. She should have gone to a dean. In a statement to Tortoise, the college said... The welfare and disciplinary functions of the college are entirely separate, and this is publicised in all of our documentation and is well known and valued by our students. Harling had said that if the man had contacted her, he could be punished. But it would emerge that this man wasn't even told of the no-contact order. He was asked to give the women a wide berth, and if he did so, the matter would go away. So Sophie decided to pursue a complaint against the man with the college. But before she could gather together the paperwork, she learned that he had submitted a bullying complaint against her at the university level. So six months after sitting in a room and describing one of the worst nights of her life, Sophie was under investigation herself for bullying the man who she says raped her. The the, the person that had sexually abused me was accusing me of bullying him. And this was being... I mean, after that meeting, I went on to find out that it had been supported by the college, you know, by the, the by Reverend Harling. You know, I don't, of course, personally think that what I did was bullying. But anything that could have been construed in that way, I was advised to do by Reverend Harling. And so to find out that he had been involved in advising this guy <laughs> to... Com- complain against me for bullying I just burst into tears in the meeting and was just like sobbing basically hiding behind like this paperwork so I could cry which was like yeah I hadn't cried in front of anyone for any part of this Harling's position is that he was offering support to this man as he would to any student But the core reason for this bullying allegation against Sophie was the fact that she had spoken to other people about his conduct. The action she felt she was advised to take by Harling. I actually want to cry right now, even thinking about it, because, like, I just felt... It's really difficult to put into words how profound it, it was because... I mean, there was a sense of betrayal, like I trusted you, like you put yourself in a position where your job is to say is to protect people in who have been assaulted. You know, this is like you you must have volunteered for this. Like this is what you wanted to do, and yet you you like you induce people to come and talk to you about things that are so, you know, they make you so vulnerable. Like, you encourage women to come and make themselves vulnerable at your feet just to then turn around and and use that vulnerability against them. Sorry. Yeah, I would just lie there. And, like ask her why you're trying to kill me (laughs) because 
does it just it's sincerely like I I think because I had gone into it with such like in such good faith like I've been so honest not just about that but about other traumatic things that had happened to me in order to assist them with going about the business of delivering justice and instead of doing that like they had it just felt like they had gone through everything that I'd said picked out all my weaknesses and then were trying to use them in order to make me disappear like I just felt like your goal here is to make this go away and if that means me dropping out of uni if that means me killing myself like that's what you want to happen (laughs) that's when I was told that my complaint against this uh like the person that I had accused of assaulting me um couldn't go ahead at the college level so I was told essentially there's like a hierarchy it's police university college and you know if there's a police investigation that takes precedence over anything within the university if there's a university investigation that takes precedence over a college investigation so I was basically told like you've been outgunned on this one like he's gone through this like higher disciplinary process therefore if you want to make a complaint you'll have to make it to the university too um so again, I, I think it's just an, an attempt to avoid liability from the college. So you know that I'm about to make a complaint and then you swoop in and get him to complain in such a way that I couldn't possibly make a complaint to college about him. It felt, it felt calculated. Like if you knew that it was coming and then encouraged him to do something to prevent it from happening... The, the university's disciplinary procedure, it simulates a real court. The standard of evidence is beyond reasonable doubt. You'll have, you know, he will have a university-appointed lawyer that's going to grill you like an actual lawyer. And the, the standard of evidence is the same as an actual trial. So I'm really no better off going to the university and complaining than I would be going to the police and complaining. But I, I was told... It's going to be so, so awful. There's absolutely no way you'll be able to to go through that and continue studying. Um, So you need to take the year out. I heard back from the university first. Um, I think it was like the 5th of January or something. It was was really frustrating because I just intermitted and then I get this call being like, Oh, by the way, the university's concluded you aren't a bully. I think his complaint was that I had got him uninvited to a party. No, no, literally, that was his complaint against me. That was that was the bullying. Two of the women raised a complaint about Harling's handling of the case. Harling himself disputes large parts of their story, particularly they advised the women to take matters into their own hands. These processes did find that Harling admitted that despite being a welfare advisor who gave talks on sexual consent, he was not aware of Cambridge's anti-abuse campaign. That admission, they found, implies incompetence and failure in an important welfare issue. In their reply to us, the college claimed that allegations of inappropriate or incomplete advice against Harling had been investigated and dismissed. 
the college's view continues to be that Harling's account of that critical meeting should be trusted over the three women's. A meeting at which, it emerged, Harling had taken no notes. The college told Tortoise that they did not accept the three women's account. But Sophie was paid a five-figure sum in compensation by the college for what she endured. The college also told Tortoise that students are supported when considering whether to make a formal complaint to the police, college disciplinary authorities or university authorities. The women, they said, retain the option of starting a disciplinary action, something that, after all of this, none of them trust. At Queen's, as elsewhere, there's a sense among would-be complainants that the institution's instincts for self-preservation will always come first. This was the story of one woman. A story of one case, one college, one university. But these sorts of mishandled complaints happen everywhere. Official statistics show that students are more likely to be sexually assaulted than the population at large. Polls and consultations of students, though, show there's little confidence in the ability of institutions to deal with concerns or complaints. Right now, the University Regulator for England, the Office for Students, or OFS, says there's a lack of consistent and effective systems, policies and procedures across the sector. The head of the OFS says that students continue to report worrying cases that have not been properly addressed by their university or college. Higher education institutions really struggle to work out how to respond to sexual misconduct. This story was reported by me, Chris Cook, and by Ella Hill. It was produced by Joanna Humphreys with sound design by James Rapson. The editor was Kerry Thomas. Thanks for listening this week. Stories like this one, they take a lot of time to report and they take trust too. Chris and Ella have been digging into the issue of campus safety for more than a year now and they've done all of it with the help of Tortoise members through Thinkins, our open news meetings. So if you'd like to join Tortoise and help shape our stories, we'd really love to have you. Just go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend and use my code BASHER50. That's B-A-S-I-A-5 for a special discount. Thank you, and I'll see you next week. Hello, it's Tomini from Tortoise. This podcast is sponsored by EY. Safe, efficient and reliable railways help to keep us all connected, thanks to Network Rail. Yet, maintenance on the railways is a risky and sometimes fatal business. At Network Rail... Two previous attempts to invigorate its track worker safety programmes had failed, leaving employees feeling sceptical that the organisation could ever get railway safety right. Since 2019, EY teams have worked with Network Rail to deliver a transformation that improved safety protocols and changed employee behaviour around safety. Network Rail Rail Hub, a new digital safety platform and app, eliminated inaccurate paper trails and worked offline, so it could be used by workers in remote locations. Since the platform was introduced, near misses affecting maintenance workers on the railways have fallen by 40%. Read the full story at ey.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. 
United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.